Holy Deep podcast. I have a page of notes, and I don't know if I'm going to read them to you. I'll probably share some of them, but this episode was an absolute gift. Uh, my dear friend and new dear friend, Ben Curtis, was on the show. Ben is an actor. He was in Dell commercials. He was in Orange is the New Black. He's a musician, a magician. But most importantly, he is one of the most connected, self-loving individuals. And this episode is loaded with wisdom. We talk about, do you have containers to let your soul unleash? How Ben is a drag queen inside of him roaring to get let out. How to embody your true self. From incredibly rebellious preacher's kid to actor and world changer. How he asked to go to therapy at 10 years old after he smoked a cigarette. He was a professional magician at 13 and a full-scale illusionist at 18. Uh, he was living in ground zero on 9-11, which led to drugs, PTSD, and addiction, which ultimately led to his success. He was famous while getting arrested, drugs, and alcohol, and he was running from it all. How his fear of success constantly led to self-sabotage and how he fixed it. Uh, how he got arrested in a kilt with no underwear, which that one's pretty funny. The two most powerful questions somebody else can ask you every day to help you succeed. If you don't make time for your wellness, you will make time for your illness. Do you intentionally take the time to listen to the right things? Do you make you statements instead of I statements? Plus a lot of stories from me, some tears on both sides, some deep connection points and a brotherly loved connection formed and probably a deeply endowed relationship I'll have for the rest of my life. But this one was a good one. It was loaded with nuggets and love. And I think it's a multiple listen. And so without further ado, here's the episode. Are you ready to ethically scale your business? Good. Because this is the Mind of George podcast, where relationships beat algorithms and depth is the only direction when it comes to ethically scaling your business. Each Monday and Friday, I'll be the guy between your ears in the hoodie and pink shoes guiding you home, giving you the tools to extract, honor, and amplify your genius so you can be the light for your customers. Sound fabulous? Cool. Let's get into the episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Mind of George Show. And today I am honored, I am humbled, and we have a very special guest. You might have known him as Steve the Dell guy, because I sure as shit did, or from Orange is the New Black or The Marvelous Mrs. Meisel, but I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but nor do I care because none of that shit matters to me. Because I had the fortunate pleasure of meeting this man without knowing all of that. And he is a man, in my opinion, that stands for depth courage, tenacity, love, compassion, and turning himself inside out to be the greatest stand for himself, his family, and those around him. He does men's work. He leads people. He's a walking wisdom bomb. If he ever retires, he can just make fortune cookies. But either way, he took in a marvelous path to go from Dell, the business, computer, hilarious commercial guy, which by the record, I watched about 11 of those commercials this morning because I had to dive in to now one of the most incredible heart-centered aligned men in the world. And so without further ado, Ben, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, George. What an introduction, dude. That was great. Yeah, man. I, my people, my podcast are probably sick of this, but like I obsess about watching freestyle rap, but I can't sing. Oh, I love that. And I can't rap. So I realize I love speaking because I speak off the top and I just like to see what comes out and that's where they come mm. from. So, you know? gets us to today yes i can't sing and i can't rap those are interesting statements too but, and full disclosure we could, we could talk about that this whole full time because i bet you could i bet you full, could do both i bet you're actually a really good rapper do you just pretend you're not 
and you actually can sing, but you don't let anyone hear you. And I'll and I'll say this again: it's not that I can't; it's that I choose not to. Okay, that is there a we very, go. Very very powerful reframe, but I've reframed it enough where I'm like, you know what? Like my art form and my magic is speaking, and I mm. I prefer that one. And so that is a very mm. good reframe. So thank you for catching me. Thank my pleasure, because you know that's a big part of my life, and my wife is. Um, chose that she was a singer at age 31 and now she's the lead singer of my band and we tour and write together and it's a big thing just because she said she could sing and before that she really didn't think she could and it was through meeting each other that we unlocked that and so i just want to give everyone who thinks they can't sing the permission to try because anyone can some of us it comes naturally to but it's a muscle and even me, I started taking voice lessons for the first time ever in my life. As a band, we did it to up our integrity. And I was like, oh, I can sing higher now. Like I always said, oh, I can't sing high. Never. I just wasn't training my voice yeah. properly. So uh, I just want to put that out there for the record because uh, I love it. I would love to hear you sing one day if you feel like it. I, well, here's the thing. Like my daughter is an incredible singer. She sang our wedding song, walked us down the oh. aisle. Uh, and my daughter was in vocal lessons most of her life. And I'll never forget her music mm. teacher, Vivian. And I was like, hey, do I have any hope? And she's like, let me hear it. And she's like, boy, you got work. There's hope in there, but you got work. And I was like, okay, cool. So a fair answer would say that like I've found my gift and my craft. And uh-huh. I like training my speaking muscle more mm. than I have a passion to train my singing muscle. And mm. uh and I, I do love it, though, because like my favorite shows are like The Voice, but only the auditions. I don't like the show once the competition starts. Oh, yeah. I get like emotional and teary eyed when I see somebody singing with their backs turned and like you just hear like their soul and the depth. And it's truly like a blind yeah. rendition or audition. Like I my guilty pleasure is like singing shows like. American Idol, for the record, I don't agree with all of it, but I do love watching the auditions because I love like the country boy that's laying concrete whose buddy signed him up and like no training whatsoever, just walks out and like bears his soul. And I love seeing people like that, like get their moments and get their recognition. It makes my heart happy. Oh, well, that makes my heart happy, too. It's the authenticity you pointed to, because that's why I say like, well, I'm good or bad at singing. I always say, you know, there's people who are terrible at singing technically, famously. Even Bob Dylan was not a great singer. However, if you own it and it's authentic and it's coming from your soul, that's what's going to resonate. And that to me is like, it took me years to figure that out. Like I just started playing the blues at one point. I was like, oh crap, that's just soul. I was waiting to pour out of me. I just was trying to like channel it too narrowly to say it had to come out this way and you know, just allowing those those containers. We were talking about that earlier that give you space to to like let your soul unleash. And even my wife and I, we're still working through intimacy issues. We're both like highly sexual creatures and really physical. And we're both actors and and we're really in our bodies. And yet sometimes we get weird with each other in the bedroom. And uh, but on stage man, that's a great safe place for us to unleash it. And for so we are more almost sexually self liberated on mm-hmm. stage than in our own bedroom. So that's something we're working on now is like, you know, why is it safe for us there? I mean, we could unpack our child around <laughs> that one, but 
like, you know, creating more play. Like we've been together 10 years now. And, and even those things like being in a band help us keep some spice up in our day. And I, I just danced in her, my booty and her face on the way up here. And uh, we practice doing that to like to remember each other, to dance a little bit. And yeah. uh, usually she's the one doing it to me. And of course I do it to her and she's like, like, you know, and I'm like, okay. You know, and eventually we yep. smile and then we just move on to our next appointment. You know, it's so funny. That's one of the ways we get through the day. You know, it's funny is when we hit record, I had no idea we'd spend the first 10 minutes talking about singing and dancing, but it reminds me, I watched this comedy skit a couple weeks ago and I had to send it to my wife. It was a short one too. And this comedian was hilarious because he talks about like, and I'm going to butcher it. I can't even deliver it, mm -hmm. but basically it's like, you won't find one man that if a woman walks up and like puts a body part in his face or dances in or anything where he's ever going to say no, because it's just, yes. But you have a dude that walks up like nowhere. Is it this thing of like, Oh, I can't wait for a dude to put his butt in my face or put his junk in my face. And it was yeah. such a valid, <laughs> valid delivery. I was dying laughing. I texted it to my wife. We had a good laugh. And that reminded me of oh, that because great. it's the same way. She'll do the same thing to me and I love yeah. it. And then I'll go to do it. And I'm like, what? Yeah. You know what? I'm, yeah, I'm not as attractive in that, in that area. Like I, I get it. Right. I'll show you yeah. my calf since you like my calves, you know, we'll, we'll go that, we'll go that route. Nice. But, all right. I like to just get extra weird. It's good, man. It's, it's about the express. It's something like in full disclosure that that's a, that's a shadow of mine. That's an edge of mine. Mm. Um, mm because of you know a lot of the childhood where there was so much shame for any expression of self, whether it was fun mm -hmm. or sadness or it was monotone. And then of course I joined the military and it's like one flavor the whole way through, right? My barometer oh, wow, had to be yeah. glued shut, like glued into the middle. And so that's definitely an edge that, um, cause I find myself a lot of the times where people will be having fun or being fully expressed in their masculine or feminine and my mm -hmm. default response is to shut down rather mm. than open up because it's an edge of mine. And then my energy will come off as like dismissive or down or demeaning. And it's it's definitely yeah. one of those shadows that I, I practice a lot and and dancing with. It's it's a really interesting thing. So before before we go any deeper, because this <laughs> I already love this. Yeah, I want to point to that shadow too, but I I'll I'll follow. Here, you. do you, here, do you want, we can unpack the shadow. We can unpack the shadow, then I'll go. Okay. So that is also a shadow that I, that I have faced and it's mostly, but it looks a little different. Mine is like wanting to come out fiercely. I say like, it's like, I have this giant drag queen inside of me that like just <laughs> needs to be like super fabulous and loud and weird and like sexy and raunchy. And I don't really know how to do that, but I found like when I'm in the wild or nature or in a pool, I'm, I'm, I've taught myself to do that. And that's where I'm learning to unleash my inner child and to give, and I'm realizing, well, why aren't I doing this more in public, you know? And that actually would give other adults permission to do the same. And it was similarly programmed in me being a boy from the South with a, with a military grandfather and manners and everything was very, I mean, none of that stuff was appropriate. Right. And it definitely wasn't manly. So learning to uh, unleash in new ways, nature has really helped me a lot this year. I, I feel like we might have been separated at birth a little bit every time we talk. <laughs> it just gets a little bit more edified that like, yep, okay, cool. Thanks, universe, for smacking me with Ben in the most pleasurable way. I'm, I'm the, actually the same way. Like one of my 
uh, dear friends, best friends. I talk about on podcast all the time, Stefano Safandos, who's been an incredible mm. part of my life. I'm the same to where, you know, some of my most expressive moments have come on nature hikes when I'm alone and I'm like in the middle of the Masogi. If you're not familiar with the term, Google it. Uh, it's a Japanese term, um, Masogi. And then I'll get to like the top of the mountain. I'll feel this like inner and I'm like, there's nobody around. What are you worried about? And then I'll let out this primal scream or like, I'll start skipping <laughs> all giddy and I'll be like yeah. expressive. And yeah, the muscle's the same for me in that, in that lens. But here's what's interesting. And, and I'm going to ask you a question before I ask the one I was going to ask earlier. You talk about like when you're performing on stage, right? For me, I feel like it's a thousand times easier when I'm on stage, like when I'm speaking or giving a talk to be fully embodied and expressed because there's almost like this little bit of like, well, yeah, these people are here, but I'm not so concerned. But then when it comes to my partners or my best, my part, my wife or my best friends, or even my kids, sometimes mm. I find this little ceiling that I'll put on because I'm like, well, what if I do it wrong? They might not yeah. love me. They might not, whatever. And I'm a lot more comfortable doing it publicly in being on podcasts and things like that than I am doing it intimately because it's like full self-expression and fully open. And that's another edge yeah. that I'm, I'm constantly flexing and training. And yeah, I don't know if that's, that's the same That's a great point. Oh yeah. Well, I th what I'm really hearing in that too is the, the container. So you've created, yep. we were talking about that earlier too. You've, con you've container, you've created a container for safety on stage. It's like why well, I used to love being a bartender versus a server because I had a bar in between us and I'd be like, no, like it's on my terms if I serve you or not. And it's kind of when you're on stage, like you, you're controlling the music, but you also can feed off the vibe if you want to. You can create a vibe or, and you can be fully self-expressed or quiet and you actually have the physical space to do so. Now, some of you may need to train your bodies to take up that space. I used to be in my head as an actor, but I was like an athlete. And so I was in my body as a dancer even but I couldn't put the two together and it took a lot of practice to get me to really get freed up also on stage in a scene, which was also a container. Like how did I get in my, out of my head and into my body? And it was just practice. And I actually went from, um, from the Lee Strasberg theater Institute doing method work to the experimental theater wing, which is all physically based work, commedia dell'arte mask work, clowning, uh, everything was embodied and it, I just, from then on, it was like, I just was given a new gift and a new tool that I could implement without thinking about it. Now I'm always in my body and I practice and I cultivate that inner child. I'm now the first, <laughs> my wife always makes fun of me because I'll like, we'll even go to the neighborhood pool and there's only kids jumping off the diving board. And then like, here comes Ben Curtis. And I'm like, Whoa! and I do the biggest, craziest thing I can yep. remember from teenage and even I deal with myself and be like, eh, people are going to think you're showing off, dude. Don't do that flip thing. You know, you can do people are going to think you're showing off. And every now and then I like I bust my face and I just come out of it laughing. But then all these other adults get up on the diving board. I just took one person permission to just jump in and be free. And then we're like, oh yeah, we can too. So when do we stop doing that as adults? You know, I think a lot of to be, to be safe as kids, right? Yeah. Yeah, man, that's a, 
God, I'm the, I'm the same. get older and you're like, man, now I got to do all this work to get back to childhood. And I was a child and you're like, I just want to grow up. Dude, you're old. You're like, this sucks, man. This is I what I grew up for. Yeah, well, it's funny. I had a shaman say to me, he's like, well, this is how that human evolution works. You're born and you're taught how to forget. And then at some mm. point in your adult life, you wake up and all you try to do is remember what you knew when you were born. And <laughs> it... It just like, that's great. That like rocked my soul for like months. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm remembering like what expression looks like, what freedom looks mm. like, what integrity looks like, what authentic expression looks like. Not with the, where's this going to land? How is this? But like my true authentic self. And I think you nailed it, right? It's when we're being our authentic selves, when we're being in integrity, when we're doing all of those things, we write a permission slip for other people to do the same and lead by example, because I'm the same dude who won't go to the pool for eight years and then I'll jump on the board and I will be the first one to try a double front flip or a double back flip or a two and a half. And I might face plant and it might hurt, oh but God. at least I tried. And I, you and I have so much resonance, it blows my mind and I love it. So <laughs> now before we get any further, I wanna set some context. So I'm, I'm incredibly endowed into you and your life because I've been internet stalking you since the day that we met. <laughs> and so I've done some deep like level oh, nine Lord. linger, I'll find you wedding crasher research. And, um, yeah. and it's been fun because the more I found, the more I fall in love with you, which is great. But for Aww. everybody listening, you know, in, in your life and in your story, there are quite a few points of success and down and success and down from acting to commercials to uh, a band to a coach to doing men's work to doing all of it. And so for everybody here, can we give them the however you want to describe it, the evolution of Ben and how we got to mm. Ben today would be the great way for me to start. Mm. Thank you for that space. Um, the evolution of Ben. I mean, how much time do we have? We got as right. much as we want. Okay. Well, I mean, it goes back generations. I'll say, um, I'm going to talk about my parents a little bit. It's really present for me. I lost my father. He left this physical world about a year and a half ago. And it was by far the most profoundly painful yet beautiful thing that's ever happened in my life. And so I've had a lot of opportunity to, to reflect on my life and the generations of it. And I, I did it. I'm really proud of myself for the things I asked my father. I have two things I say to everyone now. Ask your parents their life story before they die and tell them to get rid of all their shit while they're still alive. Decide where everything's going before. Um, the So I grew up in Tennessee. My family, uh, we have multiple generations. We, I don't, I feel like we came right off the boat to the South. I don't know how far it goes back, but we've been here a long time and that's something to deal with. And as I got older and I found out some more in my family history, um, I'm related to Tennessee Williams on two sides of my family. I'm also related to General James W. White, who um, was in the Confederate Army and um, responsible for a big part of the Trail of Tears. 
And um, so that means my family is responsible in some way for genocide. It's also responsible for slavery in some way. And it's, um, and then I've had all these other family members who have worked in civil rights and helped minorities and, um, and really just come from extreme poor working class. And, uh, and then my immediate family are, were like the, the black sheep inside of all of that. Um, and so I grew up to, to a, uh, an Episcopalian priest who um, was able to fully come out in his fifties um, as a gay man and a man who loves God who taught me so much and a mother who uh, was a Southern lady who is a French teacher and then has given her life to working with refugees and politics and civil rights. And um, even now she's 79 years old. She has a broken hip. She's in rehab and she's still tutoring a Sudanese woman in English, uh, a Sudanese refugee in Chattanooga. Um, so I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee. I was born and raised there in the Southeast mountains. And, um, we had a view for hundreds of miles from, from our front yard. And, um, we were above a bunch of people and we were white and everyone at the bottom of the mountain was black and poor. And yet Chattanooga, I saw, even though there's a lot of racism, had a lot of places that were coming together. And my father was a stand for, um, love despite race. And, um, he was an Episcopalian priest, like I said, so I also grew up in the church in some way. And I actually, I love God. I love spirituality. And, and I became incredibly rebellious as a preacher's kid is, um, and I was born, you know, in this household of people of service. I had a big sister who taught me a lot about feminism at a very early age. Um, I became fascinated with women and menstrual cycles at an early age because of that. Um, I had a lot of tough conversations. My parents had an extremely codependent relationship with zero emotional boundaries in the household. Um, a lot of fighting, a lot of pain. Um, and there was just generational depression in both sides of my family. But also my parents were the first ones to find counseling to find therapy and to seek it. And uh, my mother's father committed suicide and she grew up angry at men uh, my whole life. That's what I felt, angry, abandoned by men, abandoned by her. And then when my dad left, abandoned by him. And then when I went to college, abandoned by me. And yeah, my parents are my best friends. So we've gotten to work through a lot of it. And my big sister left when I was 10. So I was sort of there to deal with all of it myself as well. And I had to grow up really quickly. I became a comedian became fascinated with magic. I met David Copperfield when I was four. And while I was too shy to do anything else, I watched my dad preaching. So I really learned to take the stage and the spotlight to like, to cool off the drama. I almost learned to become bigger than it. And even my parents, I, I remember being a violent child at times. Um, I think I was embodying the pain of my family. Mm. And being Southern taught not to you know, there's, we were like also this like perfect little church family. And my mom taught at the girls preparatory school and my father, you know, and I was, but man, was it painful. 
And, um, and yet my parents were so loving. They encouraged me to talk about my feelings. They encouraged me to go to therapy. I asked to go to therapy after smoking my first cigarette, 10 years old. I was so depressed and full of shame. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was talking about my feelings at an early age. My mom wouldn't let me throw tantrums without talking about my feelings. My dad was encouraging me to be sensitive. He taught me that bullies hurt more than we do. And that's why they inflict pain on others because they're hurting. He taught me to go learn about the other uh, races in our neighborhoods. We had, he made sure that our church went to, uh, an, an all black Baptist church every MLK day. And that every other year they, they were welcome in our church so that we could hold hands and sing together and learn from each other. And my best friend was black growing up and I played in an all African-American baseball league in this neighborhood. And it was really rare. Like I was the only white guy there and I loved it. And I didn't, understand why people hated on each other um, other than being born into different privilege. And I got why they were pissed off. I just was like, why are white, why are white people hating on all this too? Um, and so I, I say all of this because it was really my background for becoming a performer, yeah. learning. I was really good at taking the stage at um, being a chame chameleon in any situation kind of learning to adapt and also um um sorry i was having some audio issues that were really throwing me off Whew, a lot of emotions are coming up while i'm sharing this so being able to adapt and wearing a lot of different masks in any situation i was a really sensitive kid i didn't feel like i belonged anywhere really um and I was always fascinated with like indigenous culture and, and other races and minorities and the people who were suffering. I think my dad was also a big fan of the underdog and a man of the people. And he went to Haiti every summer. He gave his life uh, to, to volunteering in Haiti. And then he'd bring back, he'd buy all this art from the people in the streets and he'd sell it to Westerners and they'd take money back. And um, so I still have all this Haitian art in my house because of him. And um, I just learned to love beyond boundaries. And my dad was a counselor. And even before I got married, he, he told my wife and I, like, you have to get counseling before I'll marry you. Um, and my mom was still always a champion of the sensitive guy, but she was the very, she's very like pragmatic, spend within your means, you know, get a job bagging groceries. And my dad was like, do what you love, like money comes and goes. So that was like really confusing. <laughs> Uh, also, I feel like I inherited the idea that wealth meant you're bad mm. or Republican, which also meant you're bad or, uh, or, um, or you're just evil. And like, that's somehow I inherited those things. And thank God I had an uncle that was Republican that I could ask about. Like, I realized I was being programmed as a, we were like the only democratic family around, but I was being, who were white. So that's the other reason why we were friends with all these black people. But I was like, but I was, uh, I realized I was being programmed almost as a Democrat. So I would talk to the other side. So I was always interested in the other side. I never had one group of friends. I had a lot of different ones because I wanted to know how different people were thinking. And um, I guess I just grew up like being taught about like helping the people and those less fortunate. And um, my mom like fought, 
for gun control and because of the gun violence around she fought for like ending the um the uh, electric chair and and um the death penalty um especially because of how many innocent people are still there and um she still she wrote 75 postcards uh a, a week for like 10 weeks to get people to vote in the state of georgia to all different um all different politics and so I became a professional magician at age 13. <laughs> All that magic stuff led to that. I, I was fascinated with business also. I was sort of the only really hyper business-minded person in my family. I loved to know how things work. I was always upgrading, having my own yard sales and garage sales and putting ads in the paper. And my dad was helping me brand with at Kinko's, like cutting things out and photocopy them 6,000 times until you eventually have a flyer that you could fold yep. in. And I got a really successful magic business. I met another kid in my neighborhood and he had a magic coach. And so by age 13, I was getting paid to do magic. By 18, I was producing full-scale illusion shows that involved theater and storytelling and music all from my heart. And my mom still wanted me to get a quote-unquote real job. So that's what I was dealing with. Like I was doing what I was law. What so thank God my dad drove me all over the world, and I ended up getting into the school of my dreams. Even though we couldn't afford it, I also got an acting scholarship, and we still couldn't afford it. And I so we took out like massive amount of loans. It's not healthy for any family to take on. And I was able to go to Tisch School of the Arts on an acting scholarship at NYU. And um, everyone told me to go to New York. I went with the intention of still being a magician. I got my first agent for magic there. Uh, I was performing in like the Marriott Mar Marquis and that rotating restaurant at the top and doing really well. But I, I was studying intensive craft intensively of getting a BFA in acting and going to um, a conservatory like Lee Strasberg for months. Um, so I really got into that and I found I mean, I didn't even really meant to, but I, I, I thought it would take years, but within months of trying, I had an agent, I landed my first job and then my second job, which is the Dell computer campaign, um, overnight, it became such a huge success. I didn't know how to handle anything. No one trains you for that as a teenager or an actor in acting school for how to handle your life and a career and the amount of demand and pressure that's put on you. And then... Basically, I found myself finally getting out of the dorms and living in what two months later became ground zero, um, September 11th. And uh, I just barely survived. I saw everything. It changed my life. I saw so much death. And it was, and I'd just done the landmark forum in the World Trade Center. So I was also like, yay, I don't ever have to do landmark again. And then like, also my life is transformed. Wow. Um, Landmark's a personal growth and development organization that I ended up getting developed in as a coach and leader later on in life. But um, really all of this was where I turned to drugs and alcohol. I didn't know I had post-traumatic stress disorder. No wonder I was getting jobs playing drug addicts and, and, active military men and, uh, and really drawn to the homeless. And, and I always was drawn to people in jail and I got to New York and I just wanted to help all those people. And I was just destroying myself and I was getting a lot of money and fame and auditioning for major motion pictures and everything. And, but 
my heart was somewhere else, but I was just pouring toxins into my body. And it, um, I think it was at the, it was at the wedding of Randy Jones, uh, the cowboy from the village people and his partner, Greg, and like on New Year's Eve. And I met this old wealthy man and he wanted to invest in me. He said, but I won't until you put down the drugs and alcohol. You could be so famous, but you won't until you put that down. I was like, have we met before? You know? <laughs> But he just knew. And that was like an angel. And I started hearing these angels along the way, including one day when it was like 5 a.m. And I was waiting for my Coke dealer to like drive up. And I was uh, living at 71 Broadway in the corner of Rector and Broadway, right next to the Trinity Church and Ground Zero. And suddenly the sun was rising and the church bell rang. And I looked up and I like, all I can say is I felt God like ringing the bell, like, hello. And I saw my life and what I was doing to myself. And I finally called my dad and I asked for help. And he came and helped me go through months of mail, six months of mail I hadn't touched. I was too terrified. I, I And helped me understand that I might be sick, helped me see a therapist again, get on medication to a point where I could function enough to even start to get help. And I got diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and anxiety and depression and all the things. And I finally dropped out of school and I was failing. I just like, I got arrested. Everything was just, my career had taken off, but no one was asking how I was doing. I was just blowing it up and self-sabotage became so familiar. And I was so terrified of becoming more famous because I thought I would just destroy myself even more. I mean, I was rubbing elbows with everybody. I've met Hugh Hefner and Jeremy Piven and uh, Steven Spielberg has called for me and I blew it all up. And then I had to deal with that and I got arrested It went on national television. Dude, you're getting a cell. I actually keep this on my wall. So I remember this is the... Uh, this is like the posting from like that morning. That's my, uh, basically like a mug shot and from the, uh, associated press and the New York times, just to remember like where I came from and that we're all human. And that was like that get arrest. My agents hated me. <laughs> my manager lost, you know, a half million dollar contract. She could put her kid into school with, and I got a break to finally take care of myself and think about life. I was very, barely employable. Basically, I became like a, a good waiter and bartender. And that just allowed me to drink more until my life got so bad that, um, well, I got arrested again. No one knows about that one. It was a big DUI and I was about to go on tour with a band. Um, oh, I was playing great rock and roll. But even my band had a uh, had, and I'd been bands my whole life. Um, but even my band had an intervention with me at one point. Even my girlfriends, I always also dated alcoholics or daughters of alcoholics, and I finally started getting signs, um, like a, a sober uh, mother of a of a girlfriend who's like, "Yeah, you remind me a lot of myself." 
like this, like she saw the addict in me and um, other people begged me to get sober and just took me blacking out and hitting bottom and being unemployable before I got help. And first I thought it was with cannabis and then I knew it was alcohol. And then I just saw it was just me. There was just a lot of old thinking and I needed to get a lot of help. It wasn't like all those things were just a symptom of, a, of another disease. And it was in asking for help that my life changed. I found a sponsor. I got better. I realized service kept you sober. And then also helping other people was great service to them. They're like, oh, me? Wow, thank you. We're just saying I'm not okay allowed someone else to say I'm not okay. Or That's the first place I learned to say no, where even in, and I found other men's groups and, and whether it was recovery or not, like people, adults saying like, your childhood was not okay. This is why this is what you're exposed to. And there's something you can do about it. Like we're reparenting ourselves. This is a family. Like you can practice healthy boundaries here. And, um, I'd already taken a hostage, AKA my wife. We met when we were both sober. So that was great. We were both trying to be single, but we met on the dance floor and she thought I was gay. Cause I finally was living my best life. I was, I was with all the gay boys. I was exploring my sexuality. Finally, I felt the freedom. It took a lot of bottoms, but that's like how I'm able to be myself now. I can be as effeminate as I want. I can be attracted to men and, and still have a loving relationship with her. She can be attracted to women. We can just be attracted to life. We can be real with each other and I can say I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. And I have other guys to go to help for. Like she can't be everything for me. And that was another great lesson I learned is like I made everyone my higher power. I may have gotten sober for a while, but I didn't stop using, you know, people, places or things as drugs. So through all of that, I kept up leveling my integrity. The other thing that's, you know, is in a landmark conversation of integrity where I realized like what I was putting in my body didn't work. And also where I met coaches and people who made lots of money and loved themselves. And I was like, what? And then I started learning from other actors about how to love yourself and how to make more money. And then I realized I would, I've been holding myself prisoner the whole time. And I still, to this day, I want to write, um, I have a 20 minute play called dude, you're getting a cell. It's on YouTube and it's intense. It's like faces nine 11, but also has magic. I wear a kilt. I got arrested in a kilt with no underwear. I don't talk about that much either, but I had a Scottish girlfriend and that was a whole nother story. Um, but, uh, I really faced these things and I never made it a full production, but I, I decided just to start owning my pain and a lot of men's finally stepped forward. It wasn't like, Hey everybody, I'm doing great. My life's wonderful. No one really cared. They're like, oh, good for you, dude. I had a friend that unfollowed me because his life sucks so bad, but it wasn't until I started being real with people that other people felt permission. And I, and then I saw how much suicide rates are high for men how much mental health is not taken care of. Veterans aren't taken care of. Uh, lawyers who we think, you know, have it all together, don't take care of themselves. Doctors don't take care of themselves. None of us are taking care of ourselves. Men have zero, up until recently, safe spaces to go be real and take care of themselves. Like they don't, we didn't have permissions. We didn't have leaders or examples or any of that. Women have had to, because they've been oppressed by men their whole life. They had to create all these unions to get help, right? But now we're getting to change that. And I am have given my life to be part of this conversation now that is 
this is the evolution of Ben Curtis, <laughs> that you can make anything and your purpose and any dream you want for your life is possible if you're willing to receive it and ask for help. And that has been what I've dedicated everything I do to as an actor, as a musician, as a coach, as a speaker, as a podcaster, as a, just a human. Yeah, man, I, I think, well, first, thank you for sharing all of that. <clears throat> thank you for sharing all of that. One side caveat, just as another reason that we're probably friends. Uh, I was the only white kid in my class for kindergarten, first grade and second grade. I was the only one. <laughs> living in West Hartford, Connecticut. So we, we share that in common as well. And when I hear you say, you know, I had to be willing to ask for help. I think that's a big part of it. But the undertow that I keep hearing that I, I really resonate with is this, until you're fully integrous with yourself, and then you're willing to be honest with those around you, asking for help is just going to keep putting a bandaid on a symptom. Mm -hmm. And would you say that like, if, if there's people listening to this that are not in the best place or something in their life isn't working or they're feeling those feelings that one of the best things you can do is to have an integrous conversation with yourself, but also like really operate from that place. Because I know for me, I was the same as you is that the addiction never left, just the wrapping paper changed. It went from <laughs> bulimia to opiates, to alcohol, mm. to distraction, to women, to everything. And then it became entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship was the easiest addiction because I was rewarded oh for every choice that I made. Like the more addicted I was, the more I was edified for making the wrong choices. And mm -hmm. it wasn't until I was really willing to be open and authentic about everything. Like, I don't want to do this. This doesn't feel right. I don't want to be an influencer. The point where I deleted social media with almost a million followers, like I hit delete. But it was one of the the big lessons that I learned is that um, if I kept it in the confines of my own head, I was guaranteed to lose. And there was a point for me yeah. where I realized I was starting to be integrous with myself, but I wasn't being held accountable to that integrity. I would be the first one to find a back door in my own ecosystem. And it wasn't <laughs> until I started speaking that integrity to those that were around me. And I like to do things big. And so my inner circle wasn't big enough. So I told the entire world on one of the biggest podcasts that I was an addict, that I was bulimic, that I, mm -hmm. you know, did all of it. But I realize now looking back, like probably one of the most powerful moments of my life was when I made the decision to not keep my authenticity inside, but to realize that it was only authentic for me if I shared it with people outside of myself. And that's probably been one of the biggest things for me. Is that, is that true for you too? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> In every aspect of the word. I mean, I, one of the things I still struggle with to this day, I, I was even thinking about it as I was walking up the steps to do this, like after I you shook your butt in your white space. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. After that, I thought, what's the big challenge? Are there any challenges in my life that he might ask me about? And I wonder, you know, usually I don't try to, and then I remembered, Oh Ben, you don't have to think about it. You can just be present and trust George is, you know, and trust the conversation. So thank God I have that tool. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I was just, I'm still challenged with asking for help. So I'm starting mm -hmm. to really talk about it so that I can't hide from it anymore. I told my team yesterday, I want you to each schedule meetings with me this week. Here's the link. There's things I, we need to talk about that I need to ask you for. 
that I'm not being clear on. And they're like, thank God. Yay. <laughs> you know, like they're, they're ready. They're like, my team's so big. And I don't, I still don't even know how to, I still see that I'm not, my first instinct is not to ask for help. And my God, I come from a whole family that like processed emotions constantly at every dinner table. And it was all about asking for help. So my God, what is it like for people who don't, who didn't grow up that way, who were like, you don't talk about anything. I'm like, Jesus, if it's like this for me, we talked about everything. Who can I help? There must be something I have to say that'll help someone. So there's absolutely, there's, um, there's that thing. And I got to check myself, you know, with those, with those isms every day, you know, you also mentioned, like asking for help, but also being integrous with yourself, like having a conversation of integrity. So even my wife reflects to me often, and this is why, I, why we work so well. And she's a great teacher. She's like, I'm not here to take care of you. You're like having some response right now. Like I'm just trying to move forward and have this conversation. And I think she's being totally selfish and sensitive and manipulative and evil in that moment. That's my first thought. And then my second one is, is she listening for me? And my <laughs> third thought is, am I listening for her? Like, what am I bringing to this conversation? And then can I stop making it about myself and say, hey, are your needs being met? What do you need? How are you actually feeling right now? Um, we're really practicing not using you statements, but I feel statements, right? Yep. Yep. And we've been practicing that our whole marriage, but we still have to remind each other. And so, so, oh, and then the, and then the next thought is add it like the fifth one that I'm really trying to make more like the first or second is, um, <laughs> am I taking care of my own needs? What do I need before I speak? You know, before I'm just like, oh, my partner, like, am I, have I met my own needs today? You know, before, and often the answer is no, when we're most activated. Yep. What, one or both of us have not met our needs. She hasn't had her morning walk or I haven't my, had my morning walk and meditation or, or it's, you know, I still try to make us do it together. And if it doesn't happen together, I want to make her wrong. And I'm like, dude, I could have done it myself six times while I was waiting for her, you know? And so there's all these, I'm still working on being responsible for myself and being in, in integrity with myself so that I can help other people. And if I'm not, then there's no way my team's going to thrive if I'm not taking care of myself. They won't have anyone, right? And that's the one thing I'm helping my partner with in a mastermind right now is, um, you know, I asked her, we, the first one, we had two questions for each other. One, where have you, where are you out of integrity with yourself that you could take one action that would put it back in or move the needle forward? And two, where are you out of integrity with your team or one place where you could put it and move it forward? And for both of hers, it was her own health. And I was like, well, where is it for the team? She's like, my health. Again, if I'm not well, I always say, if you don't make time for your wellness, you'll make time for your illness. And she's making time for her illness and it's costing her and her team time and money because she's not present. That's, so that's a good a big one, thing man. for me too. Yeah. And what I love, uh, and, and I just want to, I just want to say this because in, in hearing you speak, what I love is that you're speaking about integration, not that there's like a finish line, not that like you make it, mm. but it's a, every day, what do I choose to practice? And I can even hear in the tonality of your voice it's from a place of like self-love and betterment, not from a place of like shame and guilt or bad and wrong, but like understanding. Oh, well, those that, are easy for me. Those are easy. Yeah, yeah. Those ones too. Yeah, but exactly. I, I, I feel like, you know, 
one of the traps that I fell into for so long is this illusion of finish lines. And, mm. you know, when we think about business, we're, we're hitting KPIs, we're hitting goals, we're working in quarters, we have revenue goals, and we create this illusion of a finish line. OKRs, yeah. And, and I found myself when I was functioning in that, I was trying to put finish lines in my life. I'm like, oh, no, I had the hard conversation. I don't have to have another one. Oh, I changed that behavior. I don't need to tweak it again. No, that's my new habit. I'll just stick to that one without giving myself the humanity and grace that's required mm. to grow every day. And and hearing you model it is so powerful. It's it's a beautiful thing. So I just want to thank you again for for speaking about this because you know when I when I hear you and even earlier when you were talking about like being able to ask for help and help our team help us, right? What I've learned with myself yeah. is that um, I have to be very very diligent of when I ask for help, because one of my shadows is using the term or the framework of asking for help as a way to hide from myself. Hmm. Because I'll ask for help to avoid the deeper work. I'll yeah. ask for help on something that I'm not willing to walk into and solve. And that's been an edge <laughs> that I've had to really, really practice and flex. And it's... um. <laughs> It comes back to that it's like, laughter of recognition for I, those I know, of you who can't see us right now. I know, and and I, and I really feel like at the end of the day, like I got to remind myself that like we're a team. Uh, my mm. teammates are made up of whole individuals that are playing their own game, and mm. I've fallen into the trap before of like advocating my own responsibility to team and asking mm. for help, and I didn't need help just because I wasn't willing to sit with or be with or deep in my practice. Or like even you said, like, have I taken care of my needs today? And if mm -hmm. I don't know what those are, being willing to ask myself a different question of like, what are my needs today? <laughs> like, yeah. oh, that's a good place to start, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I think it's huge, man. I, I, I absolutely love it. And I, for everybody listening, like, I also learned in the power of not knowing. And now yeah. I love the place where I can be like, hey, Ben, Hey, but I need help. And you're like, with what? I'm like, I have no fucking clue. But something mm. in me just felt like saying I need help. Mm. Right. And there's the recognition of that, but it's a muscle and, and hearing you speak and, and for everybody listening, I think out of all the work I've done and all the things that I've done and, and like, I grade myself from a place of love. Like if a hundred percent's the finish line, where am I? I'm at like 1.7% of like having mm. the game figured out or at least pretended to figure out. But there's this place of like practicing it every single day. And so I have a question for you around this because you've talked about this a few times. Like you said, you got in your head of like, what is George going to ask me? And you're like, oh, I have a tool for this, right? Or I realized I wasn't in my body and I know how to get back into my body. Or I realized that my default mode state is, oh, she's being critical. This is about her. Wait, wait, wait. Nope. Cancel, cancel, cancel. Let's go with how is she feeling right now, right? <laughs> Yeah. And I feel like those are incredibly powerful tools, but I feel like you and I have a lot of similarities. And I remember in the very beginning when I learned the tools, I still didn't know how to use them. Yeah. And it's that I wasn't practicing them. And so like, what are some of the things that you do or what are some of the practices that you have that help bring you back home for lack of better terms? Like back to mm. Ben, like back to my body, back to, yeah. it doesn't matter what George asks because I feel like, if we can give some people some tangible tools and it becomes a tool that we practice, it creates momentum and results. And so I'd love to hear from you, like what, what that looks like every day. Like it may be running meditation, it may be walking, it may be reminders, it may be putting the picture of you in a cop car on the wall 
and leaving right. it on the background of every video, reminding yourself, like, dude, you got to sell. Yeah. You know, like, I would love to. Yeah. I would love to hear your thought process on that because I'm innately curious, and I'm probably going to take some notes for myself. Oh, well, that's great. That's a great question. I love how you said it. I mean, I also think it's important. You mentioned something on uh, on my podcast, dude. You're getting well the other day, which mm-hmm. we had a beautiful conversation. If you, I loved if you it, man. I haven't gotten to hear. It's going to be out soon. So stay tuned. Um, you mentioned, you know, practicing boredom. And yeah. I think um, while I don't do that, I think practicing some time, and maybe this is the same thing. It's especially, I learned this from my dad dying. It really made me like stop because I was just grief just held me down until I was willing to let it like vomit it out. And so I had to just like just sit with it and be and it was in those moments that i remember that i would hear the grace that i would hear the messages that i would hear the wisdom whether it's from me or god or angels or generational or or just you know science whatever it is like taking time to listen a little bit each day um and it's that pause um and I think that's so, so, so important so that we know what we need because each individual needs something completely different to come home. So for me to really come home, if I had like an ideal morning and I'm still not like, I'm I'm not fully there yet with this, but an ideal day. Well, I'll say that the one thing that really helps me come home, nature. Nature. Absolutely. Yeah. Without a doubt. So I've actually, it took me 22 years of living in New York City to get myself out. I'm still close, but out far enough to where I can wake up and see. I mean, I had an incredible view there and I could get into nature in Riverside Park, but it wasn't the same. There's a constant hum and energy. My nervous system, I noticed, was getting more and more frazzled. And so it wasn't until I moved out basically also forced out during the pandemic. Like we had renters and then, uh, <laughs> then a cockroach infestation in our New York city place. And then our Portland main place turned out to be a scam. And then we were homeless in a hotel with a car full of our stuff. Like, where do we go? Oh, well we're teaching a circus camp at a Waldorf school in Rhinebeck this summer. And we got there and there's a farm and all these kids in the forest and our best friends there living on campus and all these other artists who we are inspired by and who we've even worked with there. And we realized we had found home. Mm. We were around nature and children and animals. And I was like, Damn, this is the kind of school I needed as a child and as an adult. Right. So I just looked at those things. Um, And then also we happen to be around nature around um, San Diego, where my wife's grandmother turned 101 right before she died the same year as my father. And so I just started surfing every morning. I have a friend who's 16 years older than me and uh, he's incredible guitarist, uh, world, uh, Richard Miller. We have our own retreat balanced guitar together. It's a guitar yoga surf retreat in Costa Rica every year doing these things. And we surf together every morning and he's like, he's just an incredible dude. He's also an amazing surfer, but getting in freezing cold water, getting in the ocean, I could yell, I could scream, I could punch it, I could float in and I could be held by it. 
I really found my home in water. And so now I seek it out everywhere I go, no matter the time of the year, I seek water. Um, we come from water. So, and I take cold showers every morning that helps me come home. It wakes my ass up to my body and not my thoughts. Running really helps me come home because I've been running my whole life. I've been, I was a soccer player, an athlete. I've got a really powerful body. So when I use it, it reminds me, um, taking a bike ride is a great, another way I come home playing my guitar, banjo or harmonica and singing any instrument that vibrates with me, uh, I find brings me home. So I have all these instruments around my, my room. I have literally all those things I mentioned, plus a didgeridoo, plus a drum. Didgeridoo is one of my favorites and I have singing bowls everywhere as well. Um, my wife and I have done a lot of sound healing and I realize all these things are just vibrations. And the other thing I wanted that's coming up here that I'm remembering, we talk about this in our retreats, but we don't share it as humans enough is that we have a cavity in us. We have a hole in us, each human, we have space in ourselves. And that's the space we're always trying to fill, but like in an instrument, that's where the music resonates. That's where the magic happens. And it's important to sit with that space, to sit with that emptiness, to sit with that feeling and listen for what it wants to be filled with or for what it may be telling you or for what you could fill it with that would really resonate in your soul, not just like fill it up and patch it over temporarily. Right. So I think about now our backyard also has three different kinds of trampolines, a swing set, like all these different kind of swinging metal exercise things, a badminton. We have all kinds of things. You would think we have like six kids if you walked into our yard a basketball goal, like uh, uh, all the things, like we more stuff, cornhole, I can't even think about it all. But it, it is to elicit joy in us getting in our bodies and having fun together. So that's another thing that helps bring my wife and I home is having fun together. Or say, if we're not willing to sing together, can we at least play a little competitive game together? Sometimes that helps. That works it out for us. Um, yeah. And we also have space, like I'm finding, you know, just having my own space and meditation and prayer is the other way I come home. I bring the people I've lost that are most important to me in my life that I'm thinking about or I want to bring with me today. I, I invite them to sit with me in meditation. I invite a power greater than myself to carry me through the day to have a thought that's other than just my own ego. And that if I do have angels or guardian angels to please help me, you know, to please speak through me today to get like my, you know, agenda out of the way and help someone. Right. And also help me help myself. Mm -hmm. So that's still like, you know, you may, you really pointed to, it's really easy for me. It used to be to ask others to save me. I mean, I had, thank God I had girlfriends. It was like, I'm a drown. I feel like, I'm a drowning victim. And instead of coming out to save my life, you're just like pulling me down with you. And instead, or I'm swimming along, having a great mm -hmm. time. And then instead of you swimming with me, you're trying to hold on. And that, I, that really resonated with me. So I, I still have a tendency to do that with my partner, people, um, probably my partner mostly. And so I've learned to like, I've got to practice letting go a little bit so that I can tend to my heart a little bit. Yeah. Man. And that's, that's a work in progress. Here's what's funny, and and this is 
I have like seven collapsing thoughts that are all competing right now. So I'm going to get them all out in like one, one fail like story and we'll practice my freestyle. But number one, I think you'll laugh about this. My wife, we were at the beach the other day with our friends and we got into this conversation of phrases of speech, right? So I've done similar to landmark experiential. I was a coach. I was a teacher. I did all the trainings, right? And mm-hmm. one of the things I used to say was no worries. And it used to tag my wife because she's like, stop assuming I'm worried. But then mm. the other thing I used to run around and say was, you complete me, right? Like, and, and, and mm. she made like a big joke about this, which then reminded me about the water and the swimming of something you said. And this ties into nature and resetting in that space. And um, I had a very wise teacher in a personal development world who asked me, she's like, are you swimming against the current or are you floating down with it? And I was so proud, mm. so proud of like, oh, I'm swimming against it. Like, I'm going to prove my story wrong. I'm going to show him that I can do it. I had like Napoleon complex. I had all of it. And she's like, oh, you think you're winning, huh? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, you want to know what visionaries do? They stand up and realize the water is only six inches deep. <laughs> and that one <laughs> like struck me to the core. And then that leads into the other thought when we were talking oh, about when you, when you were talking about nature, right? Um, there's this incredible book by Michael Easter called The Comfort Crisis. I re-listen to it every mm. six months. And I know that one. It's an incredible book. It came out like two years ago, and he does an incredible job of collapsing a lot of scientific research as well as like personal growth and development through masogis, right? Which is the Japanese term for doing something hard. Right. But he also yeah. talks about all the scientific studies about nature and the, the countries that invest in parks and the, the healing properties of nature. Oh, yeah. And when you talked about nature, one of the things that I've realized is that in order for me to come back home, I have to recognize there's a power greater than myself that exists. Right. Like when I sit in my office and I meditate, I'm in my environment. Right. Like I'm just like it's mm. mine. It's controlled. It's this container. But one of the reasons I live in Montana is it took me until living here to realize that I was afraid of silence. Cause like, I'll go on a hike here for eight hours and not see one other human being. And the mm. only thing I'll hear is nature. And I'm reminded mm. about how infinitesimally small I am <laughs> when I see a grizzly bear or I hear a river or we have floods or something like that. And it's, yeah. it's interesting because I've started to recognize and you alluded to this with surfing. Right. Like if anybody thinks you own the ocean, it's game over. Because the moment oh you God. think that your life is done. Right. And I remember living in Hawaii and living in Hawaii, they, all the locals tell you, they're like, there's one rule about living on the ocean is you never turn your back to the ocean. Mm. And I, I did at one point, I ended up getting hospitalized with MRSA and coral reef because I got ripped across the rocks and everything else. But when I oh, think about coming oh back gosh. home, one thing that I found, and especially in the last two years, is that in order for me to come home, it has to have the ability to remind me that there's something greater than myself, whether it's nature, whether it's somebody else, whether it's a game that I'm not good at, but it's something that like humbles me and puts me into this place of student and yeah. experiential and, and, and enjoying every moment, which then leads me to the last part of that thought. And you were talking about this and it collapses the health part. There's another incredible book by an author I had on the podcast, Bob Berg and David Mann called The Go-Giver. And it's basically five laws that dictate every which way I live my life right now. And I was really good at four of them and I sucked at the fifth one. And the fifth one was the law of receptivity. And Mm. that was being open to receive. Mm. And I realized that 
if it's about me or if it's in my container or if it's in my ecosystem, then it's my ego. And there's nothing receptive that can come in in that place. It requires me to surrender to something greater than myself. And one of my coaches gave me an analogy. He's like, you know what you love doing? He's like, you love making deposits in the ATM. And then when you want something, you stand there and expect it to spit money at you. He's like, but I want you to try that. Just go stand there and see how long it takes for money to come out before you punch in the pin and make a withdrawal. And it's a funny, funny concept. And that's great. I love it. It always, it always stuck with me. And like the, the through line of like all of this is so beautiful. And one last thing on that thought, and I think you'll appreciate this because what I'm reminded of when I go into nature, right? Like I love going on like eight hour hikes outside of my mm. office, knowing I'm not going to see another human, right? Because the first hour is all me in my head, right? Like I'm like, oh, here we go. I got to do this. I got to do that, right? And then I get this moment of like presence where I'm like, I'm really one with nature, right? And then I get the breakthrough. And then I get to the top and I'm like, yeah, I'm so stoked to be done. Shit, I have four hours to go home. And then I'll start crying because I'm like, no, I just want it done. I don't want the rest of this game. Can I just ride the lift to the bottom and get in my car? And it's this like being fully experienced and riding the modulation and having the whole experience, not just the up and the down and relating to it. And that's something I turned off. And I think you'll appreciate this with your love of the ocean. So in talking about this, freedom of expression and living your full self and being authentic. Uh, one of my, my wise coaches said, uh, you're too afraid of what people really think about you. You're a master at controlling what people think about you. So mm. here's your assignment. He said, this weekend, when your wife and kids are out of town, I want you to go to the beach. And I was living in SoCal at the time. He's like, I want you to put on your loudest, most flamboyant bathing suit. And I want you to go down to the beach and make sure it's crowded. And then I want you to act like was you're that three you, years George? Old. That was, was that me. you I saw there? <laughs> He's like, I want you to act like you're three years old and I want you to fully express yourself to the point where you only succeed if somebody shows concern that your handler lost you. Like, I want people to think you need to be locked up for what it was. And that was like one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, but it was also like one of the most freeing. And I was in a place that reminded me of something greater and fully expressed and yeah, I was rolling around on the beach, rubbing sand, like moaning and then jumping up and down and doing backflips. And like I was getting the glares. And then the more I got them, the more free I felt and the more I wanted to like play into it. But I'll never forget what I felt like after. And after I just felt free, like I felt alive. I felt present. And I figured yeah. you'd appreciate that because I do. It's uh, I love that. It was a stretch for me, man. It was a stretch, but it was it was extremely profound. And so I love your I love what you said about, you know, finding your way home and, and having multiple ways to express that, whether it's playing with your wife or, you know, getting out into nature, getting in the cold water. And, you know, I, I even love what you said about the cold shower, right? Like I've got to take ice baths with Wim Hof, like he's who trained me and all of this stuff. And I'll I'll always remember that when I wake up in the morning with Montana cold water, there is zero part of my brain that wants to commit to that act, whether it's one second or 60 seconds, and it never gets easier. That sounds really cold. But what I always love is that the moment I commit and my mammalian diving response takes over is that I don't have the space to think anymore. Mm. All I have is the mm -hmm. space to be. Same thing with cold therapy and everything else. And I, I think it's an important note to make. And, I, and I'm just using my story for everybody listening. 
the things that we do to come home, in my opinion, need to be things that require a commitment level that's greater to ourselves, greater than our thoughts, greater than our feelings, and sure as shit for me, greater than the back doors and justifications that I can make to avoid doing them. And it, it's been a profound moment for me, man. I love that. I love that. Thank you for sharing those too. And I want to give a shout out to nature in this way too. It is now scientifically proven mm-hmm. that companies that do work in nature are 50% more productive and likely to succeed. Yep. So any work you do in nature, and I work with a lot of different coaches and leaders, including Matt Johnston here, who works with Modus and Um, I also work through an organization called Golden and we bring wellness to executives and corporations across the world. And it's all about reintegrating, rewilding, bringing nature back in the conversation. And it's amazing to me that it's taking our world falling apart. I mean, maybe it's not amazing because look at what it took for me to get my shit together. But, you know, to finally be like, oh, maybe we should really take care of like every dollar and every action we take has a reaction. And so if we really don't care for this earth, it's not going to take, it's going to just remove us so that it can take care of itself. And we, and you mentioned control, like a lot of us are humans want to be in control and like, Oh, we can control nature. No, it's, it's what we need to do is work with it and learn to respect it. I believe. And surfing has taught me, I see every straw and plastic bottle out floating next to me in the water in the most beautiful parts of the world now. I mean, luckily they're finding bacteria that eat microplastics, but it's in our breast milk. It's in us. It's in, you can't drink rainwater anymore. You're not supposed to because of microplastics, right? So we have put man into the world, right? In a, but it's synthetic. So we have an opportunity by rewilding, by connecting ourselves to nature, even just by composting or choosing to buy from a company that's a little bit more conscious we can up-level our integrity in ways that we'll never even imagine until we do. And it's just about working with the powers that be, you know, working with them, asking nature, like, how can it help us? How can we help you, right? Rather than just taking from each other. And so I think getting yourself back into nature really is an incredible source and remembering that we're tiny, that it will remove us, right? If we don't respect it. And surfing for me is such a great analogy because that's how this whole life, this whole year is for me has been tidal wave after tidal wave. And I was just drowning until I realized, oh, I have tools for which are basically equivalent to a surfboard. I can fight this or I can surf on it and with it and see what it's going to show me. And even in those moments, my, my men's group, the lion's den that I coach on every, we rotate every season these guys supported me in the times when I had a miscarriage, when my father died, every single one of these men, someone had been through this. And now all these fathers and parents and people who think they didn't have time or space for each other are making it because we only have today. So if you need to get up a few minutes extra to be with yourself before your kids rise, like give yourself whatever gift you need because no one else is going to give it to you. And I think that's the integrity conversation. Give yourself that gift and then go be of service. That's, um, yeah, just everybody hit rewind for 45 seconds and listen to that one again. If I could collapse 20 years of work into one sentence of like, what's the quote unquote secret everybody looks for? Like that's, that's the one, man. It's, Mm. it's true. 
now is all that we have. And and I'm going to ask another question, but I, I do want to give some credence to what you said earlier because it talked really quickly. But I loved when you were talking about your meditation and your practice. You know that mm -hmm. I talked about this on your podcast. I have a stillness practice, mm -hmm. right? And that that was born out of a shaman telling me that I've never been quiet enough to hear God's whispers, whether God's your intuition, whether it's, you know, whatever, because it's go, 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 go. I'm like, no, look, I can do it. I can outwork. I can out hustle. And, and I miss the best moments. But I also love the I'm ability. Sorry, to... I'm cracking up because I've had shamans in the middle of a ceremony be like, tranquilo, calm, I was on ayahuasca and I was, I went in. This was like one of my first ever I ayahuasca. I just see you. They're sitting next to me doing the same thing. Dude. <laughs> Dude, I went into this experience and like my whole life was on shambles. Like Lindsay and I were done. Oh. The business has collapsed. I lost like a million dollars in a month. I lost two companies. I lost like 300 grand a month in recurring revenue, like all within like a three month period. And I was like, I'm out of options. I will finally say yes. I'm going to Costa Rica. And oh. I went in with like all these expectations. I was like, oh, my answer's here. It's outside of myself. This is going to give it to me. Mm. It's and I was like, oh, I'm going to drink this thing. I'm going to skyrocket into the universe like Joe Rogan talks about. And I'm going to meet God. And I'm going you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do all of it, right? And then I drank the first night and nothing happened. Nothing. I just wow. laid in a bed, felt nothing, and got to hear everybody else's having their experience. And all I had was jealousy. I had anger. Mm. I had resent, I had everything. And the shaman's like, you, the medicine gives you exactly what you need. And I was yeah. like, and, and you know what I said? I said, fuck off is what I said to be really <laughs> of you did. <laughs> and I love him. His name is Brad. We are incredible friends and it's so perfect. And I was oh, like, that's so control, amazing. control, like yeah. give me the thing, give me the checkbox. Like give oh, me the God. thing, tell me what to do. Tell me how to be a husband. Tell me how to be a father. Tell me how to be a business owner. And it almost killed me. And then the second night, I surrendered a little bit, but I still went in. I'm like, tonight's my night. It's going to give me everything, right? I'm going to drink mm -hmm. until I go somewhere. And on like the third cup, they're like, no more, go be. And I was frustrated again. And then it finally got to a point where I was so frustrated. I didn't get angry. I walked up and I just started bawling. The next morning, I saw one of the shamans. I'm like, do you have a minute? Which turned into like two hours. <laughs> and they were like, yeah. And they sat down with me and I just like, they're the, the kings of asking four questions in a two-hour period that creates the most shift in anyone's life possible. <laughs> and they just let me vent. And I just kept venting and venting and venting and venting and venting and venting. And then he looked at me and he's like, and when are you going to realize that you have no control? Mm. And then I just like kind of broke and surrendered. Then I cried for like an hour. And I mean, snot, dry heaving, everything. <laughs> and then I just got to a point and I was like, you know what, man, I don't know. And then that night I went in and I went in afraid. I went in petrified and, but there was not anything I could control. I went in afraid and I'll never forget, man. I had half a cup and I went into the universe. Like I was gone, mm. like gone. And I had a profound ego death. I buried myself in my father's grave. I was reborn as a spirit animal. I got to see my birth, like my DNA, my, my everything, but I didn't learn the lesson. So then I was like, oh, it works for me. And I spent the rest of the day talking about my experience and how great it was. And the next night I had the cup and I didn't feel anything. And I laid down and then I went up to Brad and I just started complaining again. And he's like, I guess you haven't learned. And then he looked me dead in the eye and he's like, you've never been still long enough to hear God's whispers. And 
I was like, what mm. do I do? And he's like, I don't know. And I just walked back to my mat and I just sat and I laid there, but I wasn't upset. I wasn't angry. I was just like, okay, like fully surrendered. And this was after I'd already drinking a cup. It had been like two hours and normally you're feeling it from now. And then they call for the second cup and I go up and he's like, no, 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 just go sit down. And I go sit down. And the moment I laid down, I just fully committed and everything just opened up. And I got to meet my little baby self. I got to see myself as a child. I got to do all of it. And it was this, I was trying to control everything, like everything, even on the medicine. Like I was trying to consciously control the most powerful plant medicine on the planet. And mm. because of that, I wasn't getting the gift. And it was mm. when I sat still and not like, oh, I'm going to sit still. and like trying mm -hmm. to do sitting still and trying to do silence that, um, everything opened up and it was one of the most beautiful nights of my life. I've never cried so many happy tears. I was dancing. I was doing all of those things. And the reason I'm saying that is because earlier when you were talking about your meditation practice, we talk about this concept of help and asking for help. And I realized that I couldn't integrously ask for help with my team or with my family or with my wife or with anybody, because I didn't even know how to sit with myself and ask for help to call in a greater power, to call in my thoughts, to call in my intuition, to to call on my spirit guides, to talk to my father, just because he's not in an existential meat suit that exists, right? Like, hmm. and this, and when you said it, it, it rung true to my soul, man. And I was like, hmm. I haven't done that in like a month. Like I've just been sitting here listening to my heartbeat and that's incredible. And I was like, but there's so much more to this game and I'm going to leave this podcast and I'm going to sit down in my meditation and I'm going to call in people and wisdom and guidance and love and call forth like healing I want to give. And it was a very powerful reminder for me. And so in a four minute version, that was a very four minute thank you with a story mixed into it. But I just want to say mm. thank you because that, um, that landed really big because the last week's been really hard because I felt like everything was going great, but I found a new version of checking the box and I had to have some hard conversations and get some hard feedback. And I found myself back into how do I fix this? And it only lasted for a couple of hours, but it felt like hell because I was just trying to manipulate the game mm. rather than just hear it and fully feel it and fully surrender and feel the moments and feel the expression. And the moment I did that, everything got easy. Mm. And it's these reminders that I love so much. And so I just want to say thank you. Mm. It's um, so received brother. And, Which brings and, me to my question when you're done. Wait, can I say one thing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I shared with my wife, I said, you know, I had the most beautiful conversation with this man and he even shared how he was like a C plus husband. And I got so much out of that. And she was like, wow, <laughs> I like this scoring game. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I told her today, like I said, two things came out of my mouth this to earlier. We were having a conversation and really trying to create time together. And there was a lot of unworkability. There's so much we're up to. Like we're going to record our third album together this weekend with our band Dirty May. And we just got back from leading our retreat and my mom being in the hospital and her parents and all these things, right? There's always something. And two things came out of my mouth. The first one was like, I, I really need help. I, f I feel like I have some needs <laughs> and I would really, I'm wondering if you're a bit available to beat any of them. One of them was, was, um, was asking to borrow money from her for something and my life and an investment I want to make. And I've just, I've been pouring so much into my life investing 
that uh really I see that I wasn't building like enough of equals. Like I was pouring out more than I was taking in. And I said, even saying this right now is painful. Like I feel shame asking my wife for money. And I just need to say that out loud. And she's like, dude, it's okay. Like we borrow money from each other all the time. I'm like, I know, isn't it crazy? But there's something in me that's still making myself so wrong because I think I need to meet always exceed your needs as a partner financially to show up and and to to be equal and and you know it, i think just saying that i i carried you with me where i was like man i feel like i think i even said too i said i feel like i'm failing you as a husband i did say that and she was like you're fine like i love you you know <laughs> and i was because i really like felt you this week and since you had shared that with me i really let me in and i realized and i even told her no no no, no. i didn't tell her thank god i told another man i said <laughs> You know, I realize, and I've shared this with her before, but like, she can't be everything for me. And we really need other people to share things. And it was with you sharing that with me, realizing like I needed to share with some other men too. I didn't need to like put that back in her. Like, I'm not being a good husband. She'd be like, all right, well, go be a better one. Like, <laughs> you lying to me isn't going to make you better, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and 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 I got I to gotta point to that before I ask you this question, because I think... Yeah. I think in the lens of entrepreneurship, it can be one of the most lonely or the most fulfilling games that we play. Mm. But the fulfillment comes from the intentionality to connect mm -hmm. and to create that tribe around us. Like there is no mm -hmm. solo success. Like I don't care which mm -hmm. way you slice it. Like there's no way to get to where you're going without team. Yeah. But it requires that we be proactive in leading those relationships. And you said something earlier too, which I'm going to ask you in a minute. Um, but you were talking about... Um, like humility and being able to say like, I need help and I need help. And I feel like as entrepreneurs, I see this all the time where the boss or the leader is afraid to be a human because they have this illusion of what it should look like. But it's mm -hmm. funny because what they want is a better team or more endowment. And the secret to getting it is to being that human and being transparent yeah. and not having all the answers and saying, I'm just as fucking lost as you are. But marketing is just testing a ton of shit until something works and then sticking with it until it breaks a week later and we got to do it again and having this humility to do that. And so I love I love all of that, man. And thank you for just being a mirror and modeling and an incredible man, uh, heart centered and everything, which leads me to my next question, which is like, I had no idea where we were going to land this plane today, but I love where we went. <laughs> but like, what are you up to now? Like where besides a band and recording an album and doing surf retreats and like, what's the world yeah. event look like now? Like, what are you excited yeah. about? What are you spending your time on? Thank you uh, for asking. It was a great question. Well, today I just, uh, before this got off a retreat planning meeting for 10th annual balanced guitar retreat in Costa Rica. And that's in January. And that's just balancedguitar.com. And it basically it came out of a dream as someone who, I really do what I love and I help other people do the same. And a lot of it starts, if you haven't noticed, with self-care and self-love. And so we teach musicians that. Most musicians, I look at the people who don't have self-care in their life and how can we make help the world through teaching people that, right? So, so many musicians I see are incredible at their craft or on their quote-unquote instrument, but they don't take care of their personal instruments. So, as I've gotten to help like leaders and executives and and things take care of themselves too. Like that's a big missing, like they're high performing on paper, but 
they have no boundaries at home between work life and their family or their self-care or like self-love, forget about it, or being human, you know, uh, let alone that. And so we create this retreat for anyone who's interested in music in their life and to learn more about healing. And so I'm really excited about that. And then um, the most pertinent thing that's right here up front is in less than in 10 days, I'm launching the next season of the lion's den, which is uh, I'm reappropriating the lion's den as a safe place for lions to come together and be themselves for men to hold space sacred and safe space so that we can support each other and listen for each other for whatever you need to release, whether it's anger, sadness, emotion, your victimhood, so that you can get back an in integrity with yourself and be held accountable for whatever it is you say you care about in your life. And it's just a great container for that. So we meet weekly, virtually. It's on my website and in all my bios, but it's bencurtis.co slash the lion's den. And uh, you may find some other things on the internet occasionally if you just Googled the lion's den, but <laughs> you put my name in there, I'll bring you to the right place, the safe place. Um, yeah, it's there's not a huge agenda there. We allow the the men to support and create the 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 agenda each week and the conversation each week. So I also, while I'm a leader there, I'm by no means a guru, and we all learn from each other. And that's the thing I'm really really excited about um, right now, as well as my podcast, dude. You're getting well with the new episode coming out next week featuring George Bryant. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so I would say the lion's den is really there and, um, and my band dirty may, we're about to go on tour again too. So I've, we're, I'm doing all of this virtually as I travel and I love it. And I've got a lot of, I don't do it alone and, um, my self care and my morning routine and my meditation and prayer are just, I just said to my wife today, like, my God, our life, I keep thinking it's going to calm down and just gets crazier. I said, wow, we're really going to need to like this routine is going to be my rock the next two months. Like if my home looks different every day, like what's going to be the same that I can count on? And that's my self-care. Yes, sir. The more you cement that foundation of your practice, the more storms the universe will throw at you. Oh, God. Is that right? Doesn't mean things calm down, just means nope. you know how to <laughs> stick around. You know, there's there only about once a year that I'm like, oh, I should have taken the blue pill. No, I'm, I'm glad I took the red pill, but there's a reason my branding's a lighthouse. And it's my reminder mm, that the more that so I beautiful. strengthen my foundation, the more that I lean into myself, the more that I keep my light bright and my roots strong, the more storms that we can weather. And it's it's mm. a muscle and it's a practice. And when you're in the middle of a $75,000 a week lawsuit, it's a good reminder to have. And you you lean into that one and you say thank you and you take a breath and you realize that the more we go in, the better the results are out, man. I mm. I love it. I I just wanna I just wanna say thank you for a minute because you're an incredible model, you're an incredible example, uh, and it's incredible to see this and and hear the humility in what you do, but also how much you care and how much you love. And how much you give and how much you look for possibility and potential. And it's it's an absolute honor to be able to talk to you, you know, again for the second time in a week. But I, I really mean is, that. George. Like I'm just Thank you. incredibly grateful for you sharing this time with us, for sharing your wisdom and the amount of golden threads in this podcast that weren't even called out that just exist below the surface are mind blowing to me. And so mm. for everybody listening, I would highly recommend 
you give this one space when you listen, allow it to fill that hole and that cavity to resonate true and, and make sure you're listening and maybe go listen again. Listen again hmm. in a place of solitude. Listen again in a place of intentionality. Listen again in a place of what can I hear that wasn't said? And I feel like this is one of those podcasts that has a lot of subliminal, powerful golden threads that will just resonate with your soul. Mm. And so in the, in the spirit of <clears throat> this podcast, I got to wrap because I have a incredible acupuncture appointment, which is very meditative yes, for me. Nice. Only when she's done scraping, but then when the acupuncture <laughs> comes, it gets really, really good. <laughs> that's scraping. That's, yeah, that's real. So for everybody listening, uh, number one, uh, check out Ben's website, uh, bencurtis.co, C-O. Uh, his Instagram's incredible. We're connected on there. Uh, if you want me to make it easy for you, just shoot me a DM on Instagram that says, George, send me Ben, and I will send you the links <laughs> to all of his stuff so you don't have to work, and I'll make it really easy for you. Make sure you check out his podcast. It's coming down. And then I have one final question for you, my friend. And speaking yes, in this sir. tune, um, thinking about the fact that let's imagine that everybody who's listening to this podcast at this point on just got men in blacked. Everything got erased. I don't remember mm. any of it. Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith popped the radar in front of their face and they're completely an empty, empty vessel to be filled in. Okay. And you have the ability in this moment to tattoo wisdom on their soul that they will take for them for the rest of their life. What would your tattoo wisdom be? Listen to your heart. It is mm. dying to share with you some beautiful wisdom and let it sing. Look for spaces to let it sing. I love that, man. I love that. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for giving us the gift of your time. You have anything mm -hmm. less to say? I think we got it all. I'm pretty good. Can we land the plane? I feel complete. I just, um, I, there is one thing I want to say. You really acknowledged me and I want to say thank you. And that's received. And um, this was really, I just feel like I'm going to go cry with joy after <laughs> this. I feel like my heart is so full and it is such an honor to get to have shared space with you twice this week, let alone twice ever in our lifetime. And um, I feel like it's just the beginning. So I just want to say a big thank you uh, to you and what you do. And you're definitely, uh, any and all of my followers benefit from from checking out the work that you do. So please do so. And um, again, thank you for having me. It's been an honor, George. Of course, man. What a gift. So for everybody listening, we're going to land this plane of the mind of George. So, so remember, the most important thing is that relationships will always beat algorithms, especially the one with yourself. And so you will either hear me in the next episode, you will either see me in the next episode or you will hear me in your earballs. But either way, we're out. And here's the outro. Thank you for listening to another episode of the mind of George show. Please make sure you subscribe on your favorite channel that you listen to, whether it's in the car, on your run, or in front of the television. Make sure you leave a review to help other people know how much you love the show and quite frankly, help me know how much you love the show because I read them all. And if you want five-minute daily insider nuggets on business, marketing, leadership, mindset, or any other tool that you would need to build and scale your company, make sure you register for my invite-only newsletter. I call it the Lightkeeper Lessons. I hold nothing back here and I share everything that works for me, my friends and mentors, and thousands of my students around the world to thrive in life and keep our lighthouses shining brightly. We will eventually be charging for this, but for now, for you, because you're listening to the podcast, it's free. So if you want to sign up, go to www.lightkeeper.club 
fill out the application and then check your inbox because it's magic. You actually have to open the emails to get the gifts inside. Otherwise, you can get access to my Relationships Beats Algorithms Facebook community and other free resources on the website. So just go to www.mindofgeorge.com and I'll see you in the next episode.